five, scores! Rick Five. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Five. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 72 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs Fan. Joining me, as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we keeping? Not too bad, Michael. Just uh, trying to get by without the golf, being able to go out and golf and, and you know, enjoy the weather because the weather is terrible. <laughs> Well, the guy we're speaking today probably has a little better weather than us. So, I mean, you could probably maybe, or that, or you can add a snowplow to the front of your golf cart and go from there. But <laughs> now, speaking of which, our guest today is someone you're very familiar with. After three years with the London Knights in the OHL, enjoyed a 10-year pro career that started in the AHL with the Rochester Americans, followed by nine years with the ECHL's Carolina Stingrays, which you're very familiar with. Wins a couple of Cali Cups, becomes the franchise leader in games played, second in goals, assists, and total points. Named captain all nine years he played in Carolina. He was also captain his last year in London. Elected the Stingrays Hall of Fame and early next year inducted into the ECHL Hall of Fame. Boy, we pumped this guy's tires good enough. Yeah. Please welcome to the Squid Meltem Leaf Fan Show, Brett Marietti. Brett, first off, thanks for joining us and how you making out. Everything's great. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, yeah, everything's great. Squid, great day down here, 70 degrees, sun was out. Golf courses are just waiting for you. <laughs> it's funny it's funny you ask because uh, three of my buddies and i are thinking about going to florida uh in late november early december and then i thought well why don't i just go to charleston and i'm sure the boys would set up some golf there and you know so i was looking on verbal uh, for places for us to go but anyway we'll see what happens it, it may not be till february or early march or something now yeah, the courses are all looking good down here, so that'd be good. Get you down. <laughs> now, Brett, you know, no, besides, like besides enjoying Brett sounds that, like he's got a southern drawl now. <laughs> well, I was going to say, besides enjoying that uh, that uh, weather, uh, how you keeping busy today? You still you still live in Charleston, obviously. I'm still here in Charleston. Yeah, I uh, started up a little fence company, a little business. Um, actually, my last two years, I was doing it, uh, doing a little bit on the side, doing it during the summers. Um, so I'm still doing that, building fences, digging holes, and, and uh, trying to keep in shape that way, I guess. Well, all, every little bit helps. And you, and, you, and you bought some property out in the middle of nowhere for your for you guys yeah. to go and hunt. And yeah, very fortunate. So, uh, the, wife and I, the wife and I bought a little yeah. place, a little uh, a bunch of acres down uh, south of here, about an hour and a half. So uh, we get to enjoy that on the weekends, and we look forward to that every weekend. Now, I, it's funny. Now, we talk about how far the spreads and how far the reaches are of the, of the hockey. I was doing a book signing yesterday at the Hockey Expo in Toronto, and a chap by the name of Nick Vitucci approached the table and introduced himself. Mentioned, of course, he right away, he started talking about the ECHL and mentioned you were joining us on the show today and said he'd be at your induction ceremony, by the way, Brett, in Jacksonville in a couple months, January 17th to be precise. And he's a member himself. So, and by the way, he's scouting for the Nashville Predators these days. He just got back from Montreal. So, the ECHL is everywhere these days. We played a lot of times against Nick, and I have to say, my stats would look a lot better if we didn't. He was, he was <laughs> definitely a really good goalie. <laughs> well, he's in the Hall of Fame himself, so I would say he stopped a few. That's right. Now, before we yeah. get into well, the, I'm, ho I'm hoping to get down there myself, Brett. I certainly hope that uh, that I can make it. And that might be when we do our golf trip and uh, I shoot over to Jacksonville from uh, the other side of Florida and uh, attend the uh, ceremony because I'd love to be there. That'd be awesome. I'd love to. It'd be great to have you there with us. Uh, you're awfully, obviously a big part of why I may ended up getting there. So um, I appreciate that. I actually have a lot of guys that want to come down. Concan uh, um, and Fitzy, all those guys are trying to make the trip. So for now, so it might be a good time to do a reunion. Well, where you're staying, yeah, Squid, in the, by the way, where you're staying in the Sarasota area, it's only, it's less than four hours, so you can drive there. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of that if we go down, 
maybe we go down in January, it's going to be like in the Bradenton area. And then I just shoot across to Jacksonville in four hours, go to the ceremony and then stay overnight and then come back the next day. So that'd be great. That'd be great. So Brett, before we get into that exciting part of your career, let's, let's go back to the beginning. You're originally from Haleybury, Ontario. Hope I said that right. Yep. Talk about the earliers that eventually saw you end up with the London Knights. So Haleybury, for those that don't know, is uh, about hundred miles north of North Bay. So if people that don't know where North Bay is, it's about seven hours north of Toronto, basically. <laughs> it's up it's there up here. and there's not a lot of people around. So, um, when I turned, when I was 14, and I was playing AAA midget. I was actually playing for Jeff Ward. He was the, our coach way up there back mm -hmm. then. Um, when I turned 15, I ended up going to Owen Sound, tried out for the junior B team there, and ended up making it. So when I was 15 is when I left home to go play hockey. I went a little bit further south um, just to get recognized a little better, um, which in turn helped and worked. I ended up in uh, getting drafted by the London Knights um, from Owen Sound. Played my three years with the, the London Knights. Um, and then uh, as a walk-on, went to Buffalo's camp, and they signed me to a contract in Rochester. So Now, so talk about, um, it was the pre-100 days of London, but speak to life in the EO coming from, obviously, the northern part of Ontario. It must have been, even London, Ontario, must have seemed like a big city to you. Oh, yeah. Was, for me, it was huge. But, uh, yeah, I mean, couldn't ask for a better organization to go to London Knights, so. I've been around forever at the time. They're still even better now with the Hunter Brothers running it. But uh, great city, great fan base. Um, had great coaches. I had plenty of support. So it's a great place to land um, uh, being away from home. Well, talk about some of the guys you played with. So, Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, in London, I had, uh, let's see, we had guys that we, you would know. I had, my first year, we had Louis DeBrusque. I was uh, mm -hmm. a winger for Louis DeBrusque on his line. So that was a lot easier skating around the league with Louie on your line. Uh, you could do a lot of chirping. No one would say anything back. <laughs> uh, we had uh, Chris Taylor, Steve Martell. We yeah. had a lot of guys that um, – Mark Guy, who was, a, was an agent for a while. Um, and then – Jason later, Allison. Jason Allison was uh, – my second year was his first year. Um, he was good friends too. And it was, it was in his – at uh, in his wedding too with him he's, he's a great fellow um other guys we had the guys were drafted were mark Vishu. i don't think played ever played much um nick stajahar was a big second rounder to edmonton back then um didn't really have many guys that actually made it freddie brathwaite i guess he played one year with us he played in the nhl for a while um but beyond that yeah we didn't have any a lot You're, of guys that made it from that team so brett your final year uh your third year third and final year in London. Like, did you hear anything from NHL teams? Like, were they talking to you? Did you have any inkling of you, where you might go or get drafted? And ultimately, you ended up not getting drafted, but there must have been some some talk uh, about it. Yeah, so um, I was ranked, I think, in the eighth round. That was back when they had 12 rounds. Everyone had a chance to get drafted. <laughs> But uh, I was right in the eighth round. And back then, I mean, you didn't go to the draft. You just sat home and waited by the phone. And I remember that night, there, were, we, there was a big kind of party in town. Like, the party was having a festival and bands and all that. I had left at around 8 o'clock to go sit by the phone. Well, I sat there and sat there and sat there. <laughs> Even waiting for a wrong number would have been great. <laughs> but, yeah, I never got drafted, so that was a long night. But, uh in hindsight, I think it was better for me. It made me want to work harder. I got back into the gym and running and getting in shape and um, got that tryout with, with Buffalo. I was very fortunate that they let me come to camp and I uh, uh, was in great, great health. I mean, great. I was physically just the best I've ever been. And I think that turned a lot of eyes just with that. Had a good camp. That's, I guess, where I ran into Rick Viber. He was uh, starting up the uh, Stingrays at the time. And uh, mm -hmm. I remember him being at camp on the other side of the glass and making me want to dig in a little bit deeper. Just go, go by Rick Bible watched me. That was a big thing. Uh, but, yeah, so I ended up uh, playing in Rochester. They signed me a 25-game PTO. My 25 games went through. They signed me for the rest of the season. Uh, 
and then uh, in January, I blew my knee out, ACL, total reconstruction. So um, I rehabbed, tried to come back a little bit earlier than I should have. I went to Portland's camp the next year, and uh, they said my knee failed the test. Um, actually, funny story with that. Um, uh, John Brophy was the uh, um, coach um, for the ECHL team of Portland at the time. Yeah. And they wanted, even though my knee failed, they wanted to send me down to um, uh, Hampton Roads. And my year in Rochester, my first year, I didn't get to play much. I really, hockey wasn't fun anymore. I just sat on the bench a lot and didn't feel like I was part of the win or part of the loss at all. And uh, so didn't really have a good year. And in camp, I was talking with a lot of Brophy's players that were in camp, saying how John Brophy coaches, all the crazy stuff he does. Like this one guy was saying, he tripped on the way to the net one time. They ended up scoring. When he got into the room, Brophy made him take his skates off, and Brophy threw him in the garbage can. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm not going through that again. Not even near that. So I'm sitting in Trache's office. He's the coach. Trache says to me, and Brophy's sitting right beside me. He goes, Yeah, we want to send you to to Hampton Roads. I go, Yeah, I don't. You know, I'm a free agent. I can go anywhere. I think I'm going to make some calls and see what they got. And, and John slides the contract over. He goes, I'm going to give you $400, kid. Sign the contract. I go, I go no, I'm going to make some calls first. Like, he's standing over me. Like, <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm going to make some calls first. I said, I didn't have any, I didn't have fun last year. And I just want to have a year where I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the game again. I want to get back to enjoying the hockey. So uh, I called up Viber, got his number from a couple guys that, so we were when I played in Rochester, we were affiliated with the Stingrays. So there was a lot of guys going up and down that played okay. the first year. So I was calling those guys and and trying to get Viver's number. I called Viver. He's uh, I'm like, yeah, it's Brett Marietti. Uh, just left leaving Portland's camp. Um, he goes, get in your car, come down here. Well, well I'll give you five fifty. What do you want? I'm like, I don't five fifty is good. <laughs> I just left four hundred on the table. <laughs> <laughs> he goes get down here camp doesn't start for two weeks we're gonna golf for a couple of weeks there's a couple of guys coming in early and so i swung by the house picked up a few more things and came down here and it was true we golfed a few days and um but probably a month into the season we're playing hampton roads another funny brophy story is playing hampton roads and he's got all those guys just chasing me around like he hates that i went somewhere else on him so I just I'm coming by the bench and one of the doors got guys left the door open. I don't think it was on purpose on their bench. And I got hit from behind and I thought I was part of the dasher boards. Like I just was melted down the boards, like totally got the crease of the door right in the chest. And I look up and Brophy's got his foot, no socks on, got his foot over the on the side of the board, and he goes, You having fun now, kid? It's funny you bring that up because I I had Brof in Toronto, obviously, and in Birmingham in the WHA. And I love playing for the guy. He was, I don't know, maybe it's because of the way I played. He always treated me pretty damn good. But we're playing Hampton Roads one night. I remember uh, I put Dan Fornell, who played regular for us. So he was a pretty good player, but tough as nails, too. Big guy. And I forget who their tough guy was. He put him out against them. And they ended up fighting. Fardell kicked the crap out of him. And then he started screaming at me, saying, that, yo, you're putting your tough guys out against And I said, well, you put him out after me. You have lost change. And then he wanted to fight me. And I said, hey, <laughs> old fella, get over there. I'm not fighting you, for God's sake. So anyway, that was my uh, that was my big day with Brof in the ECHL when, when he wanted to fight me. I swear to God. And I said, I call him an old man. I said, "Get out of here!" <laughs> Why? So, so not, surpri not surprising that he said that to you when when he went into <laughs> into the bench. I, uh, he was quite the character. Why? Well, I, I don't think yeah. there's a player from that era that doesn't have a John Brophy story. And one of my favorites is that a young guy who didn't know who John Brophy was went to one of the camps where he was still playing, and he was the notorious tough guy. So he went up to him after the practice and said something to the effect, what I want to do is I want to learn to get, be a little tougher. I want to be like, you. can, can you teach me? And Brov said, take your, uh, put your stick down and take your helmet off. So he put his stick down, took his helmet off or something. Brophy hit him over the head 
with a stick and he said, never take your fucking helmet off or drop your stick. <laughs> he stayed it away and the kid's bleeding. Lesson learned. <laughs> so, That's awesome. That was just some classic stuff we used to hear. Now, I just want to go back to when you did start playing pro. The biggest difference, like after skating with these guys, so let's go, let's go deeper. Like after skating with these guys for a few days, what was the biggest surprise you noticed coming from playing junior? Um, I think just the way the guys handled themselves. Um, guys seem to go to the gym and stuff, like do the extra workout after. And, and back in junior, it was kind of like they we had to kind of be told to go to the gym and that. And it wasn't really like that. And if, if you followed some of the if you look, if I look back now and I see some of the guys that played like Sean O'Donnell played a lot many years, years and years in the in the minors, and then finally gets a shot. Um he was one of the hardest working guys we had. He wasn't an overly, he was a tough defenseman, wasn't overly tough. He was a good defenseman. It wasn't the best on the ice, but he still ended up making it to the NHL. So I think it was just examples like that, that if I had to go back and look that those are the guys that uh, I should have been following around probably more. And, and, and I remember he used to drag me down to the gym with him a couple of times and, and I got into working out with him, but it was just that, I guess the way the guys were carried themselves more, a little more professionally. Yep. Yeah. Um, I was going to say to you now, any uh what was one of the any memorable moments from your and for, I'm talking about Rochester now from that first year playing I know you got hurt but besides scoring your first goal and what about the physical aspect of the game did that surprise you how tough these guys really were uh yeah and uh that was one thing I didn't with the the coach I had there he wanted me in more of a fighting role and I wasn't wasn't I was maybe 180 pounds he wanted me fighting the Bonvies and I mean, I didn't, didn't mind fighting, dropping the gloves and doing what needed to be done, but I wasn't the, the dummy just to go out and see who can punch each other in the face more times. I mean, um, so that, that was one thing I, I found politics were, were big. I remember, I remember one time we played uh, in Albany. And like I said, I went two or three shifts a game usually. And uh, we were down on numbers, so I, I got a regular shift. I'm not saying this would have happened all the time. I had a lucky night, but I ended up with a goal and four assists. First star of the game. The next night, healthy scratch. <laughs> Took me out of the lineup. <laughs> Welcome to Pro Hockey. Yeah, there goes the tire. All the air is back out of the tires. But yeah, it was just stuff like that, which I which I actually appreciated when I came down here. Um, Rick was the opposite as a coach. Um, Buffalo would send some guys down to play, get ice time. That's what they're sending them down for. If they didn't fit in the lineup or they weren't going to help the team, Rick wouldn't play them. Like, he'd take the heat for it. But I mean, that's why we, we – we're so successful, I guess. But well, we had a we had a pretty we had a very good relationship with Buffalo and, and Rochester at the time. Uh, Larry Carrier, who's the, the GM of Rochester, and you know he 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 understood. He he knew that you know that if I wasn't going to play them because they didn't fit into our lineup, and I had guys that were going to do a better job, then he would just recall them, and he had to pay them anyway uh, because they were under contract and. Uh, and then they just sit in the stands. So he understood, and we had a good relationship that way. Um, I want to get into this uh, into the Carolina side a little bit more, but before we did that with you, Brett, I want to let's go let's go to the coach first. Now, Squid, you were having ninety three as head coach. You had a playing assistant gig with Hamilton a year before, so you had a little bit of coaching experience. What was your expectations heading to the ECHL to start with? Me? Yeah, you. Um, uh, winning, winning, uh, that was it. I, you know, I went down there with the, the, the intent of winning and putting together a good hockey team. Uh, and I, you know, I, but yeah, we wanted to put people in the seats obviously, cause we were just starting up. We were a new franchise, but that wasn't the number one thing. Cause I knew that if we won and, and kept winning that, you know, we would put people in the seats, which first year we did, I think we, what did we average like around 10,000, I think that year, uh, which was crazy. And then, uh, you know, then we went on and had better years after that. We made the playoffs the first year. Um, but you know what, before I got there, I, I read a lot of books on, uh, uh, like sports thing, like science and, and different things. And, uh, it helped me a lot with my communication skills and, uh, you know, because I remember one time, <laughs> I think I might have done it once or twice 
well, Brett was our captain and a couple of our assistants that called him in and said, okay, tomorrow you're going to pick up the paper and I'm going to rip you guys apart because, and, and I said, but it has nothing to do with you guys. I said, I got to wake those other guys in there up. And I said, they're going to pick up the paper and they're going to say, holy cow, if he could say that to the captain and our assistants, he could get rid of me in a heartbeat. So I figured that would be one way to, to wake these guys up. And sure enough, you know, it did. We went back and won about five or six in a row or something. So, so that kind of worked. Well, what I was looking for from you was just sort of like, I mean, here you are. Let's, let's put it this way. Then the most, the most, surprising thing you found in Charleston besides the fact it wasn't NHL and the level of play you were coming from too. That's where I was kind of looking at. Like, did you have the expectations set, the bar set high, low in the middle? You knew you were going to run into some frustration, well, obviously. Well, yeah, I mean, you're always going to run into frustrations when you're a coach in professional sports of any kind. Yeah. Okay. I mean, good answer. Be ups and downs. And, you know, yeah, so I, I did expect that there was going to be some lean times as well as hopefully some, some good, strong stretches where, you know, but the first year was difficult because you're just, you're just putting the team together and, you know, getting it started. And then after that, you know, because of uh, all the things we did in Charleston and what a great spot it was, what a great town, we had no problem uh, recruiting players after that. In fact, you know, a lot of the, the guys that played for me would call guys they knew that were in junior and stuff and say, hey, if you're going to play in this league, you got to come down here. This is a great place to play. So, I mean, that really helped setting the culture right away and, and these guys knowing and being able to tell other guys that, hey, this is where you want to play. Well, Brett shows up the second year after his stint in the HL. You'd seen him play before, but what was it about him and his game that excited you the most? I think just his uh, – the way he approached the game. I mean, he, he went 100% every shift, every practice, uh, even if he was hungover or not. It didn't really matter. And uh, But in – well, which I think a lot of them were a few times, which is fine. I mean, you know, you got to play guilty sometimes, right? And yeah. – uh, but he played a complete game too. He uh, good on the draw. He played good in his own uh, zone defensively, and, and he could put up some points. So uh, he was a consummate captain, really, and that's why I made him captain because you know he was a guy that could show everybody else what they needed to do to be successful because he was. Well, there, that, let's go right along that line. I'm going to get to Brett in a second here in unprecedented fashion. He's named captain first year. Even listen, even my beer league. You must prove you'll show up at the bar, pick up a round or two before you even consider to be captain, never mind how you play. So he was obviously caught your eye with something because you had some veterans probably still that had played in the league for a few years. And you named this kid from the AHL with, you know, half of your experience under his belt, your captain. Yeah, I mean, well, we didn't have that many veterans. We had a, a couple maybe that had played a, a few mm -hmm. years, but not guys that were, you know, five, six, seven year guys. So we had a relatively young team, uh, but it was just the way he played. I I really liked the way he played. Uh, like I said, a 200-foot game was the most important thing to me. And he, he played physical when he needed to. And, you know, but again, he, and he can put up points. And I thought, okay, this guy works his ass off every time he's on the ice. He's going to be my captain. Uh, he's not the biggest guy out there, but he plays bigger than most guys out there. And... I want him to show everybody else what they need to do in order to be successful like he, he is. Uh, well, I was going to sit up right over to you. Um, your expectations headed to the ECHL. I mean, you said you spoke to a number of other players, but maybe talk about what you were looking for to revitalize your game and take a shot. You were motivated, obviously, by not being drafted, but maybe then also go on and talk about the difference between the AHL and the ECHL. Uh Def, for me, definitely was the ice time. Like I said, I touched on it earlier, but uh, yeah, just being part of the win. Like if 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 we won, I felt felt the team played good when I was when I was in the ECHL. If if when we lost, I felt like it was my fault. I should have done more. When I was in the American League, I mean, I'd sit on the bench and one or two, three shifts maybe. And I didn't have no chance of making any difference in the end of the game. Uh, <laughs> speed wise, I would say guys are bigger, stronger up there. Like I said, more pro. Um, 
But you could take a guy. I always felt you could take a guy, uh, ECHL guy, off the ice off any team and put him in an American League game, and you wouldn't be able to pick the guy that just came up from the East Coast League. I think there, it, it, there's the talent level is, is close, but there's just more guys that are at a higher level, obviously in the in the ACE, uh, AHL. Um, but yeah, going back, the bit my biggest difference was actually getting to play. When I first came down here, I didn't have no clue how much I was going to get to play compared to what I played in American league. And uh, it was nice being on the power play, being on the penalty kill, being looked at uh, on the penalty kill to make sure to keep the puck out of the net. And, um, and then, like you said, I get uh, named one of the captains and I get to help control the room. And Rick was good at that. He let the guys pretty much control the room until something had to be done. And he'd call us in and be, where's the problem at? And we'd figure it out and go from there. One of the things I'm going to talk about that I was looking for is this ACH or ECHL and AHL difference was, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, both you guys are like this, or this one, but my thought would be players in the AHL might have a tendency to be a little more selfish, jealous, self-serving, because at that level, it's a phone call away from the show, whereas the ECHL, you're a couple notches below. So while the motivation would certainly be similar, no question about that, the process may be a little less forthcoming. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I, that was definitely there. I mean, you, in the American League, it's, it seemed like you you didn't have – your buddies would stab you in the back to get ahead of you. Um, the team we had with Rick, a lot of the guys never left. Like, even now you see there's a lot of turnaround, a lot of guys going up and down, and, and even in the ECHL. But we had a group of guys that stayed. I mean, we got on the team, and, and nobody was – even you can ask Rick, he'd come on the bus, he'd be like, hey, we got uh, – uh, just talked to Portland or something. Uh, you and Heinz are going up. I'm like, I'm not going nowhere. <laughs> I'm staying right here. I don't want to go up. <laughs> yeah. We're staying. We're stingrays. We're not. We're not going up there. So uh, it was that like was one of, that was one of my big. That was one of my biggest problems. Guys would teams American League teams would call when they want these guys, and I'd say, Hey, you're going to go to St. John's, or you're going to go to Portland, or you're going to go wherever, and they're going, No, I'm not. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going up there. <laughs> well, come on, you gotta go. <laughs> I, I, and that was probably a big thing for me was I never held anybody back. When that, if if someone called and they wanted one of our guys, I, I was glad that, that they went up to the American Hockey League and give them an opportunity to maybe see what they could do up there and maybe even get a contract maybe the following year. So, uh, but then, like I said, a lot of guys they didn't want to leave, and it was. It's kind of hard to get them to go. Definitely true. Well, Squid, picking up on that, sort of the difference you notice between ECHL players and AHL players, besides the little level of difference in, you know, maybe the way they play. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I think you got to separate it a little bit and look at the top six forwards, for instance, and maybe the top three or four D in the American League. The guys in the ECHL couldn't get to that level, uh, you know, unless they were given a, a real good opportunity, which most of them wouldn't get that opportunity. But you could take the top six forwards and the top three D on most ECHL teams and put them in the American League, and they'd be, be as good or better than the bottom six or the top three or the bottom three defensemen. So, I mean, they, these guys could play at that level. It was just that they weren't going to get enough ice time to really go out and prove that they're American Hockey League players. And that, that was part of the problem was when, when these guys went up, I mean, they might have got like four, five, six minutes of ice time. And, you know, what the hell are you going to do with that much ice time? You're not going to do much. And and that was frustrating for me when, when they would come back down and they'd say, well, yeah, I played like, you know, an average of four minutes a game or whatever. And I knew that those guys could play in the, in the American League, the guys that, that went up for the most part. And it was frustrating when they would come back and then I'd see how much they played. And, you know, cause I was hoping that they'd get an, an opportunity to stay there and then ended up getting and end up getting a contract, but it didn't happen for the most part. That falls right into the politics of the game up that level too. I mean, you got a guy that's making a yeah. million dollars a year and they set him down. They're not going to have him sitting on the bench for some yeah. guys in the East coast league. I mean, it's part of hockey. I mean, yeah. you, you got to do it. You, you hope that you get lucky. Maybe they you're short on numbers. You get a chance to play, and they you do well, and they see it. But it, it's still you're you're still going to be sitting in the stands if they got all their 
contract guys healthy and they need an ice time. So, well, how many times do you see American Hockey League teams? I know watching Marley's here when you'd have call-ups that were still had eligibility to play in the HL would go and join the team at the end of the year for the playoffs and not do much. And Marley's, I know the one year had a shot to win the Calder Cup and they sent a couple, three players down and they did nothing. Nylander was one of them, by the way. And they did, and it disrupted the whole team. <laughs> yeah. And and they, they lost the whole chemistry of that club by sending those guys down, even though you thought it should strengthen the team, it actually hurt the chemistry. Yeah, yeah, I totally yeah, see that. That was again. one of the... Yeah, that was one of the biggest things for us was our chemistry. Uh, you know, I, it's funny because when I what one of the big things that I looked at when I was recruiting or or trying to get guys to come down and play was I wanted guys with character. Like I wanted character guys. I didn't. It didn't necessarily have to be a real good player or uh, a sensational player, as long as they were a decent player, but they had good character, and that's what. That's what our team was built around. It was character. I mean, if you look at the years that we had and the players we had, they were all pretty much character guys. And the guys that weren't, I traded them or got rid of them, uh, one or the other. Yeah, that's a true story, Mike. There's uh, yep. one year we had, uh, um, I'm not going to mention any names, we had a defenseman that was top top scorer in the league at the time. And uh, we weren't winning. And the problem with him, he was more about himself, more – his assists, his goals. We lost, and he got a goal and assist. He's happy, like he's bouncing around after the game. Well, we lost. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you got a hat trick. You're still we lost. Well, Rick called me in and asked me uh, what's going on in the room, and he was kind of harder on the younger guys too. wasn't really much of a role model. So I told him, and Rick basically gave him away for a used puck bag the next day. Like in the, in the, I mean, he just got rid of him. Like, everyone's scratching their head. The fans are like going crazy. What's going on? He's one of the fan favorites, but yeah, we just got rid of him. We ended up winning a championship the next year. Well, this next part is for you both again. A couple good years, your first couple of years, 94, 95, losing the second round both times, 40 plus wins each season. It all comes together in 96, 97. Now, Squid, maybe you can take this from the start, but how is – well, it doesn't really matter. How is your mindset heading into the championship year? We know every athlete always thinks this is the year. Were there any early signs that this really was one of those years if we keep it on the rails? Squid, start with you as the coach. Yeah, I mean, we, we started out – we had a pretty good hockey club. And Ed Courtney, who had played in San Jose a little bit, he was on our team. Mike Ross, they were both – I think one, two in the scoring race, I think in the league, uh, Dave Seitz, Brett, like we had a pretty good team, but we were missing a few elements. And I remember right before the trade deadline, uh, there was a defenseman who was a very popular guy in Charleston on our defense. And, and, you know, he was a pretty good offensive guy, but there was a, a little defenseman in, in Raleigh that I knew I could get for nothing basically. But we needed a guy, uh, so we we traded for uh, uh, Roland. I forget his first name, Chris Roland. I think. Yeah. Uh, so I moved that defenseman. That yeah, I knew we were going to kind of miss him on the power play, but we needed the other guy because he had more character and he was a he was a tough guy, but he could play. He had good speed, and I added this other little defenseman who ended up in the playoffs quarterback in our power play and our power play was about 35%, I think in the, in the playoffs. So, and we lost Ed Courtney. I think it was the very last game of the year. Wasn't it Brett? He two handed the guy across the face and got suspended for the entire playoffs. And so then it was like, okay, guys, we lost a 50 some goal scorer here. Everybody's going to have to chip in and, you know, you might have to score one or two more goals than you normally would. Well, sure enough, the guys dug in, boy, I'll tell you, it was, uh, and Chris Roland was a good addition and, and Brad, uh, or Dexter that came over from Raleigh. He quarterbacked our power play, became a real good player for us. Uh, and the rest is history. I mean, our power play won that championship for us in the finals anyway, because, uh, Louisiana, we, we're taking a lot of penalties, and we just we we capitalize. Well, where I was going to go with that, Rick, was the fact that you know I, you won 40, 42 games, you win forty five games, but as the season's going along, you lose in the second round the first two years. 
How'd you keep your guys dialed in? Well, it sounds like how you kept them dialed in was if you weren't pulling your weight, you were moved out pretty quickly and mm -hmm. you were always looking to upgrade every position. So that should be motivation enough right there. So, but was there anything else you're mentally trying to keep yourself aware that if we can just get to this part, I know they could, they'll buy in and they'll get it to that next level. Yeah. I mean, I, I really had a lot of faith in the guys I had. I really did. And, I, and that, I think that's, uh, the biggest That's factor, tough. I think, is like, yeah, we, even though we lost in the second round both of those years, we, we played pretty darn good. And, and we and we could have easily have come out winners rather than losers. So I had a lot of faith in the guys I had for the most part. I, yeah, I had to move a couple of pieces and, and add a couple of pieces. But our core of our team were, were great character guys. And I remember Chris Hines, our defenseman, we're playing in the last game uh, when we won the championship in Louisiana. And he said something to the effect that I, I'll block a shot with my face if I have to. Well, sure enough, he got in the way. It went off someone's <laughs> stick, hit him right in the nose. <laughs> he skates off and, and there's blood everywhere. And, and then all of a sudden, about eight minutes later, he comes skating back out with cotton batten stuffed up his nose, finished the game, and we ended up winning. So... Those were the types of character guys that I had on that on that team, and they were there the, the two previous years. It was just a bad bounce or or here or there, and you know we we were right there, and I knew that you know that I, I trusted these guys. Well, this brings me to leadership, and the leadership starts with the cat, not only with you, with the captain. So, Brett, as captain. How did you pray yourself mentally, knowing that you just had two frustrating years the previous year after having good seasons? I know yourself personally, you're being very modest, but you put up identical numbers every year right across the board, including penalty minutes. But did you sort of allow yourself to push along to the players? I hate this old cliche, but eye on the prize, but we got to get there first. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember right uh, all the way to think, but I think that the years that we lost before that, we lost the team that ended up winning the whole thing. Uh, and we lost in game seven. So, I mean, we, I think we, like Brick said, we were right there. We would have just yeah. won that one more game. We could have, we could have chugged along and, and won. But yeah, I think it was just uh, like Rick said, we, we were missing just a little something, a little extra push. So I think we just started digging in a little bit more. And then we had a couple of good additions that, that really helped out with the uh, Dexter and um, Chris Roll and players like that. So um, we also had Jason Fitzsimmons in net who stood on his head. His back was blowing out, and he mm -hmm. stood on his head in those playoffs for us, and uh, that helped too. So um, uh, I think with all those brought together, it all came together at the right time. And um, our, our easiest round seemed to be the final on that one because, like you said, Louisiana was just taking penalty after penalty, and we were just putting them away on the, on the power play. So, um, But, yeah, yeah I think all the other rounds – I think the, all the other rounds went to the, the limit almost, I think, if I'm not mistaken. We had that Pensacola round. I think we, we were in, like, overtime on game seven. We ended up yeah. shorthanded. Yeah. And I, I remember that. Yeah. And we played Hampton that year, and we beat them in five, uh, in the game five. And, of course, they kept crying, saying that they should have won that we got the breaks and everything, which I told both. That's not true. Shut up. <laughs> well, it's broken, of course. You know, that's gonna... Now, I think you guys have both touched on it, uh, and I, I think I know the answer to this question before I even ask it, but how close were you guys? As, and Brett, this will go, go to you. How close were you guys as a team in those days? We were really close. Like um, We did everything. That year that we won, I can say that we did everything together. If we, we were on the road and we were going to the movies after practice or whatever, 18 guys went to the movies. So we were going out for dinner. There's 18 guys at dinner. We went to the bar. There was 18 guys at the bar. But um, we did, that team was probably the closest knit team. Even in the other championship I, that I had won, that was probably the closest knit team I ever played on. They said we, everyone was a family. We did everything together, um, and that that definitely helps because that that rolls back over onto the ice where you're you're got the guys back. If someone's down and that needs to get scored on, does a stupid play or something, and a uh, little pat on the butt is there does goes a long way and uh so that definitely helped squid did you know that too well, did you spot this with these kids I, I i knew they were close i knew i mean I, you know i knew exactly how the room was and everything uh, i didn't even have to 
ask anybody. I knew these guys were very – I mean, look, at I think there's eight guys that live in Charleston now that played on that team. That says something. Uh, that's yeah. That stayed there and either, you know, went – like one of them's a, what, a, a dentist or dental surgeon. Uh, Brett's got a company, Jason Fitzsimmons, Rob Kincannon's the president of the Stingray. So, and there's a couple other guys that stayed there as well. So, yeah, started, you know, getting, yeah, I mean, yeah, Bednar and, uh, you know, he was a big part of that team too. So, you know, when you got character guys like that, you don't worry as much. You, you, you know that they're going to pull everybody else along with them. And, and, and I had that feeling in, in me with the guys I had, I knew that, that the leaders on that team were going to pull everybody along with them. And, and I didn't have any worries about that whatsoever. So I want to text right. Dran. Oh, go ahead, I want to, yeah, I'm on a text strand right now with five guys um, all on that team. And it goes off every day. We talk every day. Yep. We'll make sure they listen to the show. <laughs> I'll let them know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, Brad, here's one for you. So let's get into this now. How strict was Squid when it came to things like curfews? The lad's a little hungover for practice. The usual shenanigans players, including himself, during his playing days would get into. <laughs> uh, what's good, I think, is Squid understood that there was times that we needed to get out and, and let our hair down a little bit. And and he always – one of his lines was always, it's it's – it's not the, the beer that's going to kill you. It's the chase, which staying up late all night and staying yeah. out is that's, what's going to get you. So uh, we kept it. I'm not going to say we kept it under control. We, we, and we had a lot of good times. <laughs> and Rick knew when we were out, but at the same time, as long as we won and we knew that, I mean, if you just get out there and win, if we if we're not going to win, if we're, if that, that was the worst thing, if we lost and Rick knew we were out the night before, there was no pucks the next day, and it was the longest hour of your life. He'd skate us till someone puked, and then keep skating us till the second one puked. <laughs> well, for you, Brett, as captain, did you ever have to speak to Timmy about his game? Now, you're obviously a, a you guys were close in the group, and you were the leader. Any, do you ever have to speak to anybody about his game away from the rink? I mean, it's not hard to spot that guy who's plays suffering at the expense of too much partying. Yeah, no, we yeah we definitely took care of stuff. I mean, we we would make sure that the guys, um, we had a big win. It's time to stay in. Like we, we want a little bit of a slide, then it's time to stay in and take care of yourself and make sure that we can get some wins. Whatever squids rules, um, I always remember it. I think what helped a lot by me was you'd always come on. We don't lose two games in a row. So we lost the night before we had to dig in. It was, it, it set like that was almost the last thing Rick would say before I left the room. He'd give us the, the game plan and say, Hey, listen, we don't lose two games in a row. So that made us like, yeah, you kind of remind us we lost last night. We got to win this game. So that helps. And I mean, if that in itself, if you can get a team not to lose two games in a row, you're going to almost guarantee to win a championship. So um, that was definitely a big thing that I pulled from that year, though, is that <coughs> they had for us. Rick? Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't that difficult to figure out. I mean, you know, I figured if, if you'd ever lose two games in a row, you end up the minimum is 500. But if you go on a little bit of a run, you could end up 600 or whatever. And then if you got into the playoffs, if you never lost two in a row, you're probably going to win a championship. So uh, you had a good chance to anyway. So uh, that was just simple math, really. <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't uh, you know, I wasn't a genius or anything. It was just simple math that, that you, if you figure it out and the guys bought in. And uh, But I remember, I think we won – from one season to a ne uh, to a next season, I think we ended up winning eighteen home games in a row. I think wasn't it? I believe. I think home games. We had a run. I think that year, fourteen wins in a row. I think one one run too. Or... Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like again, you know what? I I didn't have to do a whole lot, Mike. I'll be honest with you. I yeah. mean, the, the game plan that was what I needed to do was just you know devise a game plan. How we're how we're going to play these guys. And go in and talk, say a few things. These guys took care of everything uh, once they get on the ice. And I, I didn't, I, I never worried all five years I was there because I knew that the character was there. And I knew that it would come out at some point if necessary. And sure as hell it did. Most times, uh, you know, if we lost a couple of games, uh, 
that character would show and we'd go out and we'd win like six or seven in a row. Well, I think Brett touched on it because the players, the players would place themselves. And if somebody got out of hand, he would get a little slap across the back of the head and you really didn't have to do much because you let them know already, if you're not playing, you're not going to play. And if you're not going to play, you're not sitting in the stands, you'll be playing somewhere else or sitting somewhere else. So that message is pretty clear. So it would come through to guys, I think, pretty, pretty uh, direct. Well, and that was one of the benefits of being in the ECHL as well, because it's it's not as as easy in the American Hockey League because you got a lot of guys that are under contract, and it, you know if they're not performing, you got to play them anyway because the big club wants them playing. In the ECHL, you do whatever the heck you wanted to. If you wanted to get rid of a guy, you just say see you later, you know, or trade him or whatever you wanted to do. I mean, because nobody. Everybody was on a one-year contract, and they weren't guaranteed. And even guys that got sent down that were on American League deals, like I said, I had a good relationship with Larry Carrier, and he knew that if they weren't going to perform down there, then he was going to bring them back up, and he was going to pay them and send them in the stands. And, you know, we kind of talked about that right off the beginning when we started the relationship with Rochester and Buffalo. And and he understood. He said, okay, well, he said, but if they're if – they're, uh, able to play in your lineup and help you, I want them play. And I said, well, yeah, absolutely. No problem, Larry. If they're going to help us, I'm going to play the hell out of them. But if, if they're not, I'm, I'm going to call you and I'm going to tell you. And, I, you know, that and the relationship I have with my own players, I think, I mean, that, that was everything for me. Uh, I, I didn't have to do a whole lot after that. Establishing that relationship, the communication with the players, and the communication with Rochester and Buffalo. From there, everything just kind of evolved. Well, you guys had a great relationship. It sounds like you guys were close, and you guys, you know, I know the whole team was very close. What about the town of Charleston? Did they take to the team? I mean, you're getting good crowds, but were you guys known everywhere you went? And maybe speak to some of the perks going around town. I mean, it's a smaller place, so it must have been something playing on a winning team in the town. Yeah, it, was, it was crazy, actually, coming down, like, Everywhere you went, people, I don't know what was the mullets we had or not at the time they knew that we were hawking, but the stitches across the nose or, but everybody knew who we were. And, and you can ask Squid, we didn't have to pay for much stuff. We'd go to the bars, it was just given to us. We go golfing was free, just tip the caddies or, or, I mean, that was all we, everywhere. You wanted a car, go to the dealership. They'll let you drive a car for two weeks. Like everybody knew everybody in town and that, I'll tell you a funny story. My first year down here, when I think my first game in the Coliseum, um, I get the puck in my shift. I go down, cross the red line. I snap it, cross corner. Uh, puck hits the glass. I'm turned towards the bench, and you would have thought I scored. There's 10,000 people on their feet. The puck hit the glass. There's 10,000 people on their feet screaming. I thought there's a fight going on. I'm looking around. What is going on? But, yeah, they, they, they were crazy. They Even after the games, they'd come off. They didn't know nothing really about hockey. It's new new thing to them down in the south, and, after the games, we'd have stitches, and they want to touch the stitches. They're like, "Is that real?" I thought you guys—they thought we were like WWF, like wrestlers. Like I thought all the fighting was fake. And but uh, yeah, a couple of guys like Fitzsimmons, Fitzy, the goalie. Remember Bobby in the shootouts? He'd catch the puck, and he'd go like no goal with his arms, and then drop the puck and kick it back to yeah. center ice. <laughs> and the fans oh, had a lot of fun. There's no question. Well, you guys weren't quite the Danbury uh, trashers, but uh, it sounds like you turned the city upside down. Maybe those guys maybe for a different reason, but you guys uh, sounds like you had quite the following. Well, it was pretty amazing, really. And uh, uh, the fans there just came in in droves, and they, like like Brett said, I mean, you couldn't go anywhere. Like, everybody just called me coach. That was – nobody knew me as Rick. It was just, hey, coach, how you doing? You know, like like you were a college coach or something. I had a, 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 a clothing deal with a, a store downtown and I had a, a deal with a car dealership. And like, I mean, it was unbelievable really when you think about how we took that city, that city by storm. And I got to tell you, it's one of the best cities I think I've ever lived in in my entire life. And if I had a chance to go back there and get a job there, I'd be there in two seconds. Well, Living Proof is on the phone with us, is on the call with us here today. So um, I was going to say, Brett, now I, mean, I guess we should emphasize to everybody, here's a guy who played 10 years of pro, was never traded once, played three years of junior, never traded once, 
I mean, that's got to be a first. Was named captain his last year junior, nine years in a row playing pro. I mean, that, that's pretty good. So the next one is, seems pretty obvious that you would get a coaching opportunity. How did that all come about with Carolina? Well, when I was ready to hang them up, I guess, um, I think the team still wanted me around a little bit um, just because I'd played there last so, so long and all the fans knew me and stuff. And so they offered me the little – I was the assistant to the assistant. So I was – Jason Fitzsimmons was the head coach <laughs> and uh, Jared Bednar, who's in Colorado now, is the assistant coach. So, yeah. I mean, they made me a deal. I, I, all I had to do was go to home games. Didn't have to go to any of the practice because I had my own other company going. Uh, I couldn't, didn't go on the road, went on just a couple trips. But so, I mean, it was a win-win for me. I didn't really want to spend that much time. I didn't, when I got out of the game, I, I think I was done. Kind of like, the, I think the player that I was too, like I didn't, kind of led by example. And there's nothing worse than a coach. You can do everything right. And your guys can still go out and stink the bed. And there's nothing you can do about it. At least as a player, I could dig in or have a little more control over that. And I think, uh, yeah, I just didn't, coaching wasn't going to be for me. I don't think I, I was more lead by example. And there was no way a lead by example as a coach. So uh, I did it the one year we had a fun with it. And, and then uh, I just decided I wanted my weekends back. I like to do a lot of hunting and fishing. So I got yeah. time to get back into all that stuff. Well, I was. Uh, he, like, lo he loves his hunting. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, I was. You answered the question you know, for me. You answered the question because we ask you guys all the time. But he said that I, I, you know, I understood exactly where he's coming from when yeah. he talked about not being able to uh, uh, be part of the the solution on the ice. Yeah, and I I had a, I struggled with that my first year. I really did. It was it was it was a little difficult because I would get a little frustrated because I, you know, I I was watching guys that couldn't do the types of things I wanted them to do, and maybe my expectations were a little bit too high when I first got there. But then I understood. Okay, here's where we are, and and my expectations of of these players got a little bit went down a little bit, and then the next thing you know. You know, we start winning like crazy. So uh, maybe that was me settling down a little bit and being a little calmer uh, than I was probably in my first year. Well, I was going to say, Brett summed it up perfectly because as a player, you can go back on the ice. You can you can score a girl, kill a penalty, get in a fight, do something. But as a coach, you can only instruct somebody else to do what you may want to have happen and then cross your fingers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's not much you can do when you're behind the bench. And that's... That's another thing too. I hated coaches who chirped at other players, uh, players on the other team, because you know, as, as a coach, you can't go out and do anything on the ice. So shut your mouth. And that, that was one of the things I never said a, a damn word. I don't think my entire coaching career to a player on another team. Uh, I might have said something to other coaches on the other benches, but but never the players. And uh, in fact, I, I almost had another fight with. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. He was in Huntington, West Virginia, and we were playing at home. And uh, one of our guys ran into his goalie or something. Or no, one of his guys ran into our goalie. Uh, and he was a call-up. Like, a, he was an emergency backup. But we were up by about six goals. So I threw him in in the third period. And one of their guys runs him over behind the net when he came out to play the puck. I was up on the boards. I was going to rip that guy's mustache off. I told him. <laughs> he had this big mustache. I can't remember his name, but I, I, I told him I was going to rip that off. And then on the next thing you know, the referees come over and wouldn't let me get around the glass. So um, Now, Brett, I, we've heard many funny story on that. Mike. Oh, go ahead. Funny story on that is when, when I was the assistant to the assistant uh, that year, uh, we are coaching against uh, a Dunos team, Vibe. And the, uh, Dunos started getting yeah, Aduno started getting in, in, getting a little heated, and he had his foot on the in, at the Coliseum, his foot on the glass or on the boards, and he was just getting his face just around the boards. And I go, Fitz, if he pops his head around, I'm going to hit him. <laughs> Fitz is like, don't hit him, Snags, don't hit him. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, Brett, minor league stuff. Minor leagues have their share of bizarre stories. Buses breaking down, no heat on the bus, soggy subs post game, coaches phoning local beer guys to fill rosters on the road a trainer playing goal, boring, all these type of things going on. You must have seen some crazy stuff over the nine, 10 years. Can you share a couple of your favorites? 
Well, we almost had the opposite in, in Charleston. Uh, I don't think the owners like Viver too much because he wasn't uh, very easy on their pocketbooks. We didn't have soggy subs. We ate good food. We had the best buses. We had, even when we won, we had diamond rings that were way bigger than most NHL clubs, I think. But uh, yeah, we stayed at the nice hotels. If, if instead of driving back, from Florida or something. We just spent a week in Florida. I would go golfing for a week. We'd practice in, in Florida. Like we, we were living high on the hog. We, we had some good, good, uh, good hotels, good food. Uh, we were well, well, very well taken care of in, in Charleston. That's why guys wanted to come there. Well, and part of that was my first year, we had a regular coach bus, like seats. And, and I, and, and it, it was awful. I mean, we're traveling like sometimes eight hours after a game and playing the next night. Finally, I went to this company that we got our buses from. It was right down on the border of uh, South Carolina and Georgia and sat down with those people. And we we designed or oh, we ended up starting to get one of those buses that the, the bands take, but it didn't have enough bunks. So I went down and I sat down with these guys. And we got it. We I had to make a bus where we had like plenty of bunks that came down from the ceiling, came up, uh, the benches would come up and everything. So we, because I felt, you know what, if I'm going to ask these guys to go out every night and give me what I'm asking them to give me, then I better make sure that they're taken care of. And that's, that's what I did. I, you know, I, I knew our owner had lots of money. I wasn't worried about his money. I was like, I want to take care of these guys. <laughs> well, Squid, I think you just answered why he didn't give you a 10-year extension. Okay. <laughs> just answered your own question. So speaking of which, winning teams. Yeah. But, but, yeah. but we, were bringing, we were bringing anywhere from 7,500 to, to 9,000 people into the building every every goddamn game. I, I don't understand why he didn't re-sign me. I, I, I was baffled. You know how owners think. Mike, back to, your, back to your question, Mike. The, uh, yeah. I remember the one time we were in Birmingham. I really probably remember this. Uh, we played the night before and we lost, and, and it wasn't a good game for us. And um, This bus driver's name was Rico. It was a black guy named Rico. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so on the way back from – so the first off, um, he's got us all lined up at the end, and we're down, back, down, back, just skating and skating. Well, the little side door opens up from the penalty box. And here comes the bus driver. Vibers is standing at the middle of the ice. The bus driver walks on the ice and is like, Coach, man, you got to take it easy on those guys. These are all good guys, man. At the end of the skate. Yes, yeah, so Vibers like, all right, Rico says we're done. Stretch it out. <laughs> and I got to tell you, that guy was the best bus driver. He drove – like 140 miles an hour, I think, it, it, or at least it seemed like it anyway, when you were, were you, trying to lay down in one of the bunks, you were rolling back and forth. And, were you coaching the one uh, time I when we ended up, we played in Charleston, and then we got on the bus, and we were playing in Hampton the next night. We get up at 2 in the morning, the bus pulls up to the hotel, and we're, we're in Roanoke. <laughs> we're in the wrong city. So we had to go all get back on the bus <laughs> and drive to the other city. No, I, I wasn't there then, but I heard about that. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that was uh, that, that was a big mistake. Well, there's there's one for you. <laughs> well, we've just got a couple minutes left here. One of our favorite parts of the show, Brett, is obviously it comes up pranks. Lots of free time for you guys. Who are some of the better pranksters you played with over? Maybe a couple of examples of guys who got pranked. I was always usually in the middle of most of the stuff somehow. But uh, <laughs> I remember one time we had the buffet tables, and we used to do the old shoe check thing where you take the sauce or whatever, and you put it on the guy's shoe when he's not looking. Get under the table. Yeah. Um, you can ching the glass for those who, who don't know what's going on. And someone had got me the day before, the night before. So I got to the buffet uh, line early and got under the buffet table and got everyone. I didn't know who got me. So everybody that went through, I got everyone as they went by. <laughs> there was, there was uh, salad dressing all over that poor room. But um, I got even, though. Well, that's the way. Did you yeah. ever get the coach? I don't think I ever did get no. Uh, I'm not going well, to admit it right now, anyways. I, I think I, the seven year. Uh, I, th I think he, I, I think he knew my shoes that he when I went by he went oh, oh that's him I'm not going <laughs> to. Well, I can tell you the but, uh, Gary Lehman and uh, Russ Cortnall and Wendell Clark they got him one time and uh, he was fierce and then they got him a second time. 
when they were all playing together. So the young kids went after him because he wore the nice, nice shoes and the good, yeah. the good gear, and they made sure they got him. And Squid was not a happy guy. <laughs> That's awesome. No, no. Uh, well, you know what? You're not happy if you got a, you know, an expensive pair of shoes and someone puts stuff on them. I mean, you know, you got to do what you got to do. And that sure was. Well, listen, uh, guys, we're, uh, time is always our enemy in this, and uh, we've had a great time chatting with you, Brett, and we want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, great stories. We love the ECHL. I'm going to a game this week, as a matter of fact, when I go to Florida and I go watch the Everblades play. So, oh, very uh, nice. You still go to games yourself? Yeah, I go here to the Coliseum every once in a while. Part of my uh, severance package when they got rid of me was uh, I got <laughs> tickets for life, so I get to go to the games now, I guess. Well, that's fantastic. Well, listen, we want to thank you so much for joining us. Last thought with uh, Brett uh, Squid. Well, uh, again, congratulations on the the, the, yes. all, the ECHL Hall of Fame induction. I think that's incredible. You well deserved, and uh, and I hope like hell I can make it there and uh, and be there and, and watch you get uh, get get into the Hall of Fame. I think that's uh, incredible. Fantastic. All right, guys. Thank you. Great. Okay. Show. Great. Thanks, Brett, and congratulations again. Okay, thanks, Brett. Thanks, guys. Okay, Brett. See you, bud.